0: Law is the place where we can have disputes and we can have arguments and we can challenge very forcefully and powerfully our government uh, in a a way that is decent and that is civilized and uh, that is public. Uh, We can express ourselves uh, freely in this country. Those are not small things.
1: Welcome to another exciting episode of the podcast, The Thought Leader Revolution. I'm your host, Nikki Baloo, And boy, do we have an exciting, incredible guest lined up for you today. Today's guest is a personal hero of mine, hero of mine. She is somebody who has, quite frankly, through her entire career, but in, in, in one particular instance, stood up for what was right in the face of unbelievable vitriol. And that, to me, is the kind of human being we need on this planet today. I am speaking, of course, of none other than the one, the only, the legendary Marie Hennen. Welcome to the show, Marie. Thank you. Wow.
0: What an intro. <laughs> I'm going to send that to my mom. Thanks very much. Good to be with you.
1: Good to be with you as well. So you've got a new book out, and it's called Nothing But The Truth, A Memoir. And I'd love to talk about this book, but before we get into it, All my listeners will know who you are because they're from Canada and from Toronto, but some of them won't. So why don't you tell us your backstory? How'd you get to be where you are today?
0: Well, I, uh, first of all, I'm an immigrant uh, from the Middle East. I was born in Cairo, uh, came to Canada with my family, and we settled here by the time I was about four. Uh, I fell in love with the practice of law, the idea, I think, of what it meant to be a lawyer and the types of things you would be working with in elementary school. So as early as elementary school, I wanted to be a lawyer and I wanted to be a criminal defense lawyer. That was always my my desire, my passion. And I was uh, fortunate enough to have that exact career. Uh, So I've been practicing uh, criminal defense work for about 30 years.
1: That's pretty incredible. I'm from the Middle East as well. I'm an immigrant from Iran myself. And I came in here to Canada when I was 14 years old. So I was a little bit older than you were when you got in here. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I'll, I'll tell you, I think those of us who come from immigrant backgrounds to a country like Canada, we tend to appreciate all the magnificence that this country has to offer. I I, I say maybe, maybe even more so than someone who was born here because we know what back home was like. Right.
0: It, well, it is true. I mean, there is. Uh, such opportunity in this country, certainly that's why my parents came. Uh, I'm sure that is one of the drivers. It's usually the drivers for most immigrants that leave everything they know, uh, particularly our parents uh, and their families and and what they understand and what they've grown up with. And they take such an extraordinary risk to come to a different country, but it's always been driven uh, by this idea that there is more opportunity here. Uh, And there is uh, for women, certainly. Uh, and, uh, for many of us, it's a, it's a chance to have access to things, you know, for them, they would just see in the movies.
1: You know, it's very true. Uh, and I think it's important that everybody who, who lives in the West take a moment and, and really give it two cheers because the opportunities that are available for people here are, are, are nothing short of breathtaking. And this is a, a country, certainly Canada, where. It doesn't matter who you are. You can be a man, you can be a woman, you can be gay, you can be straight, you can be of a particular religion, of no particular religion. This country gives you the opportunity to be able to make the most of yourself. And I think that's an incredible and wonderful I,
0: I think it is. I, you know, I, you don't want to sugarcoat it. I, I talk a little bit about this in the book, actually, The the, the sort of notion of the North American dream. Uh, which isn't accessible to everybody, that is true. There is an in North America, that is true. There is a history uh, that we need to wrestle with that is um, a racist history, Indigenous and, and um, Black Americans, that is very much a part of the fabric of our society. So you don't want to pretend that it is something that is not. But that having been said, uh, there is education here. Women can excel, uh, certainly more than in many parts of the world, uh, we have opportunities. We have the opportunity to stand in the street and say we disagree with the government, that we, we can go into a courtroom and challenge the government. Uh, we can express ourselves uh, freely in this country. Those are not small things. And I understand there are many things that are, are not, not great as well, but uh, I think certainly my family is uh, extremely fortunate and privileged to live here.
1: And I would just say the same is true for our family. You know, we, we were Christians, still are Christians in, in Iran, which is in a 99.38% majority Muslim country. And being a non-Muslim in Iran was not an easy thing. You know, um, thank God nobody was trying to kill us for being non-Muslims like, like ISIS did. But nonetheless, it was not an easy thing. And over here, nobody bothers us for being Iranian. You know, I think I've experienced actual racism twice in my life here in Canada. One of them was really not fun. It was at the hands of family court, but that's a story for another day. But nonetheless, I had the opportunity to fight back. I had the opportunity to clear my name. And I I can tell you that wouldn't have been the case back home. That's a wonderful thing. So We have that in common. But I'm actually very curious. What drew you to the law? What drew you to criminal defense law? Why is it such a passion for you?
0: Well, I think the law in general for me is a passion. It really structures how we govern ourselves, not only as a community, but how we can challenge our our government, the laws. It's a place where the rules are clear and you can have a voice challenging those those laws. And so all of that for me was very significant. I, I love the fact that we're dealing with such broad issues and particularly in criminal law. is such a wide range of issues. And I'm not just talking about the actual cases themselves, obviously they change and and the subjects and facts are always different, but the subject matter, when you think about what the police can do when they stop you, when you think about when the police can come into your home, when you think about when the government can wiretap your phone, uh, these are fundamental things. When you think about, for example, abortion being criminalized, when you think about the right to die, when you think about the ability to, for example, to legalize marijuana, these are all fundamental issues that affect our lives. And so the scope of the types of things that uh, you were dealing with in criminal law were the sorts of things that were very fascinating to me. That's part of it. The other part of it, to to be truthful, is it's suitable to my personality. I like debating. I'm a fighter by nature. This is a contained boxing ring, if you will. the rules are clear, but it, uh, it, it works with the things that I think are um, important to me and my personality and how I would like to spend the day. And I love being in a courtroom. I love uh, engaging with judges and arguing about law. I, I, I love the unpredictability of it and the, the challenge of it. So all of those things for me, and I had a really pretty basic understanding because I didn't have lawyers in my family. Uh, But the the sort of sense, I think, of what I thought a lawyer would be and what a criminal lawyer would be um, just was always the the thing I was interested
1: in. Yeah, you know, it's 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 really wonderful to hear you say that, because I think even in a country like this, as you so readily acknowledge, there are problems and the government doesn't always get it right. In fact, the government quite often screws it up. Uh, and even well-meaning people who are agents of the government quite often screw it up. And it's important to have someone like you and many someones like you out there defending the interests of people who are caught up in a web of the government's mistakes. Or, or, or in some cases of the government, quite frankly, not even making a mistake, deliberately misrepresenting itself because it fits their narrative.
0: Exactly. Um, It's very true. You know, it was interesting. I was listening to a a podcast this morning, actually, uh, about uh, one of the last living prosecutors, I think the last living prosecutor from the Nuremberg trials, that was the prosecution of the Nazis. He was a young man when he ultimately, uh, he's 27, when he's asked to do a prosecution uh, of the murder of a million uh, Jewish Germans. Uh, And uh, he talks about that. He's 101 years old. And the one thing he said that really resonated with me is that his life mission was to replace war with law. And I think that is such a profound statement and and so important because law is the place where we can have disputes and we can have arguments and we can challenge very forcefully and powerfully our government uh, in a a way that is decent and that is civilized and uh, that is public. Uh, it's so important. And when you think about countries that are lawless, uh, countries that decide to have, uh, you know, corrupt judges, corrupt systems, uh, prey on the weak, prey on the marginalized. uh, It depends on who you know and have no no accountability to courts. Those systems are corrupt systems. Those systems are not good places to live. And so I, I just think the law is such a fundamental place for us to have disputes, decide who we want to be decide as a society, challenge our thinking in a, in a really thoughtful and deliberate way.
1: Yeah, well said, well said. So, Marie, let, let's dive into the book, shall we? What made you decide to write a book?
0: That's a it's a great question. Well, I I didn't want to write the book for the longest time. I had been pitched to to write a book. um, And, you know, I think people always want you to write the basic thing that you expect from a criminal lawyer, which is I'm going to write about all my cases. I just wasn't going to do that. It's it's not something I'm interested in doing. And I just don't think it's necessarily fair to have a lawyer deconstruct their clients and their witnesses and the witnesses. After the fact, because, you know, people who are in the criminal justice system don't join it voluntarily, both as witnesses and as as clients. They're drawn into it against their will. And so I just didn't think I could I wanted to write about that. But the second thing is, if I really was going to write about everything, I you'd have to talk about things that ethically I'm not allowed to talk about. I can't breach my client's privilege. I can't discuss things that didn't end up in evidence in court. Uh, so there are limitations as to how helpful I thought those sorts of discussions would be. So for a long time, I thought, I, you know, I didn't have anything that I really wanted to say, but ultimately I, I, I decided that there was something that I did want to say, which is my views uh, first of all, who I am, because I think people have um, only see you in a two dimensional way when you're in the public. And I understand that they're just seeing you walk into court and out of court and they see what you do in court And I didn't want uh, young lawyers in particular or young women to get the message that you had to be this sort of tough, you know, unreal, that's not real, any of it, uh, person. And that would dissuade uh, people from coming into the profession and thinking that I'm something that I'm not. Uh, So I wanted to just give um, a more full explanation of why I am what I am, who I am, uh, to just share a little bit of that. To share a little bit of my personal story in the hope that it would resonate because, you know, people would come and say, oh, you got to tell your story. It's so extraordinary. And I'd say, well, it's not extraordinary. Actually, it's a story of so many immigrants in this country. It's actually a story that is fairly common. And, you know, I finally found a publisher that that saw that perspective and was going to allow me to write it from that perspective. That was one. And there were things I wanted to say about the justice system um, that were important to me and things I wanted to say about women in this profession.
1: Wonderful, 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 wonderful. So let's get into it. Okay. So tell me, what do you talk about early on in the book?
0: Early on in the book, uh, you know, I wanted to share the story that that I know the best, which is my own story. And I found that every time I was trying to write about myself, you know, I'd begin a chapter thinking I'm writing about one thing, and I end up writing about people in my family. So the the structure of the book early on became very clear because it sort of um, sort of emerged that if I was going to tell you, for example, why I love fashion, I, I needed to tell you about my uncle. I needed to tell you about Sammy. If I was going to tell you, uh, you know, the, the feeling of being an outsider in those early years, I needed to tell you about my grandmother, my Theta. If I wanted to tell you about why I am, um, what I am in, in terms of commitment to my profession and being independent as a woman, I, I couldn't tell you that part of me without telling you about my mother. Cause that's going to explain to you why I am what I am. So I, I, I found that that for me was, um, how I was able to tell my stories, telling you the stories of these people in my life that were significant and important to me.
1: So let's talk about your, your, your mother, because it sounds like your mother really helped shape uh, you and your worldview in a big way.
0: Yes, she did. Um, you know, she came from the, the Middle East and, uh, you know, she came from a country where women had largely one path, which is to get married. You know, as soon as you were of an age to be marriageable, it was time that you get married and start a family. And that was not my mom's aspiration. She did not think that that was what she wanted to do. She wanted to be free. She wanted to travel. She wanted to be independent. She's always wanted that that independence. And she did not have that. You know, she, she couldn't go out unless she was chaperoned. And so I grew up in an environment where my mother did not want me to have that experience. She was so fundamentally resistant to uh, to that sort of constraint on me. And she felt that the way that I would be liberated from that is if I was educated and independent, that independence was the fundamental key to the ability to choose. And that meant you know, intellectual independence, financial independence was fundamental to her. So that, of course, she shaped my worldview because I never saw myself in any other way than being independent and being focused on what I wanted to do with my life. So I didn't grow up being told, you know, you're going to have a family, you've got to get married. That just wasn't uttered in my house. The only thing I was told was, you know, what are you going to be? What are you going to study? What are you going to do with your life? Uh, How are you going to be independent? And so that's what I knew. And I was so fortunate because I, I think as I've come out of that, I realized not everybody has that message being told, to them. but that was the message. That was my message growing up. I didn't know any, I didn't think it was strange. I thought that was, that was what everybody thought.
1: Fantastic. Honestly, that's fantastic. You know, I, I, when you're telling the story, I think back to my own uh, childhood growing up and you know, what your mom told you and what your family told you is what my family told me. Hey, what are you going to study? What are you going to do? What are you <laughs> exactly. going to do? <laughs> I mean, it's like the Middle Eastern parents mantra. <laughs> yeah.
0: It's, it's lawyer, you know, well, back then, you know, engineer, doctor, father, lawyer. there are only a few, right? A lawyer wasn't so, so highly regarded in the Middle East, but uh, certainly here. Um, but yes, it was, it was about the opportunity of education. It really was, and. The opportunity to be independent, Uh, and as a woman, that's what I focused on. That's
1: what I thought I was supposed to be doing. That's fantastic. So you mentioned your grandfather. Tell me about your grandfather's influence on you and your worldview.
0: It was my grandmother Your was the most influential. Yeah, yeah. My grandfather was a a classic Middle Eastern grandpa. He's very quiet, and you know, just uh, just wanted to do his stuff. But my grandmother was, again, uh, a person who was very upbeat, very dynamic, uh, very adventurous. Uh, She did not like being in the house. And yet much of her life was uh, being in the house. Uh, Much of her life was cooking and cleaning and living a very traditional life. And she did not like any of it. She was great at it. But it was not the thing that she enjoyed. And so, again, here is the other... You know, woman in my life who was encouraging me to go out, to dress up, to enjoy myself, to to you know not be so serious all the time. She was not a person who was serious. She was, uh, she was encouraging me to enjoy myself, and never would say to me, "Oh, you know, as a young woman, you shouldn't be doing that." So she was very, very. It was a very matriarchal household, um, and uh, she was. Uh, this person who was full of energy. And once again, what I saw was somebody that was very frustrated with the limitations that were imposed on her. And so, again, always encouraging me to just, you know, do my thing.
1: You know, as I listen to you share that story, it again makes me think of my own upbringing. My household was also very matriarchal. Now, my dad was an alpha man and you know, the greatest man I ever knew, and God rest his soul, phenomenal man. But in the house, mom was boss. You know, mom chose to bring us out of Iran to Canada. Mom chose where we went to school. Mom chose, <laughs> you know, where we went to summer camp. Dad provided the money. but Mom chose everything for us. And yeah. um, the women in our, in our lives growing up were the ones who basically gave us the lessons and the upbringing. I spent time with my father and I learned a lot from my father, but he worked a lot. Uh, He just wasn't around much.
0: No, like my dad too. I mean, he worked nine o'clock in the morning till nine at night at the pharmacy. He was the pharmacist. And uh, it was generally, it was six days a week. Actually, I remember the very first time he would take every two weeks a Wednesday off. It was a big shock for us. Um, But, you know, until I was 15 or 16, we didn't have dinner with my dad because he was working. Uh, and, but he was a powerful, he is a, a powerful influence. He's a very intelligent person, profoundly intellectual. You know, the, he was the one who had encouraged my love of arguing and it's a and trade and debating uh, and literature. Um, you know, and again, as a Middle Eastern father, he never shut that down he would debate with me. I remember my mom would often say like, don't, don't let her argue with you like that. And my dad would say, no, it's, it's good, it's healthy and it's, it's appropriate. So again, I just grew up in, in a dynamic where my parents were extremely progressive, and, you know, quite liberal uh, and wanted to take advantage of everything that this country offered, particularly the freedom part of it. The freedom of it was very important.
1: Fantastic. So you tell your story early on in the book. Where does it go from there?
0: Well, the next section, because it's divided into sort of the beginning of my life, the next section really is my career in law, how I, I come to law, my my work with Eddie Greenspan and Mark Rosenberg, how I started my own practice and, and firm. Uh, you know, I talk about that. And I, I talk also about the justice system in a, a number of, of chapters. To I hope try to demystify a little bit of it to try to explain it. You know when when people see, for example, flashed on the news what the jury didn't hear. Well, they they must be wondering why on earth would a judge exclude evidence that that may be relevant or that may be uh, probative. So I try to sort of explain a little bit about uh, what it is that you're you're seeing us do in court. I think it is so important to to engage with the public and at least give them information. And then everyone can come to their own decisions after that. That's, that's where the book goes, where it talks really about the justice system and my career and, um, and my work.
1: So let's talk a little bit about Eddie Greenspan. I find him a fascinating character, right? I mean, you, you got to work with him and he's, he, he, he's a legend in Canadian criminal law. Yes. And he passed away a little while ago. Um, Tell me, what, what, what was Eddie like?
0: Well, I, you know, as I say in the book, I, I had always dreamt of working uh, for him. I, I really, when people would ask me in university, where do you want to work? I'd say Eddie Greenspan. I mean, there was no, there was not an option to for me. And when I applied for an articling position, I thought it was a lousy interview. I didn't interview with him and I walked out and I cannot tell you. How utterly devastated I was! I thought, if I don't get this job, I, I just didn't know what I would be doing with myself in my career. Because for me, he was the epitome of what a defense lawyer needed to do uh, in resolutely defending their client. He was everything I thought a defense lawyer needed to be. Uh, so I was fortunate to work with him uh, for eleven years uh, to become his partner at uh, at some point in my career and. Uh, he was brilliant. He was uh, intuitive. Uh, You know, I think when people saw what he would do in court, you know, they're seeing the end product, but they don't understand how incredibly thought out it is, how uh, there were moments which you cannot teach, which are intuitive. He had an assessment of the, of a case of the heart of a case, which he could do in about 10 minutes. Uh, He just had, a feel, a feel for it. That is very, very unique and very, very special. And, you know, I got a front row seat. I knew exactly what was happening. I knew what was planned and what was not planned. And it was, uh, you know, a, a great deal of talent.
1: Yeah. I mean, I followed his career through the newspaper when I was growing up. Um, but I was, you know, what's a testament to the man's brilliance is later on in his career, uh, when Conrad Black was faced with all those charges in uh, American uh, courts, he hired Eddie to be his lead lawyer and to basically right. hire all the American lawyers that were going to defend him. And, and I, 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 read, um, I read Conrad Black's uh, account of all that, and he he talked about why he hired Eddie. And he said that I, I hired Eddie Greenspan because I knew him. He was brilliant. And I knew that even though he didn't necessarily know American law, he knew enough about what a good lawyer was all about, that he'd help me get the right American lawyers. And he was brilliant enough in front of a jury that I could trust him to have my best interest at heart. And I thought that was pretty incredible.
0: Well, it's true. I I think it was Dominic Don who was covering the the case, of famous former crime reporter for Vanity Fair and, you know, his description of Eddie's. Uh, work in court was that he was dazzled by it. This is a person that's seen every great American lawyer in in, in the country, and uh, he he couldn't miss. But uh, he couldn't miss what he was seeing in in Eddie in court. And so, uh, you know, he he was a profoundly talented, talented, unique lawyer. Yeah. So,
1: Marie, what are some of your thoughts on the justice system in Canada? on what's good about it right now and what's not so good about it?
0: Well, look, I think what's good about it is the thing that I always thought is good about it. Probably the most uh, valuable thing, most significant thing is the independence of all the actors. And I think we take it for granted in Canada in particular, and we don't understand the comparable. So let me just talk about judges. First of all, judges are not elected. They are appointed. There are different ways they can be appointed and they're some criticisms of how they are appointed, but at the end of the day, we do not have judges that run for re-election as they do in the United States. So can you imagine if a judge had to run for re-election? In other words, what they had to do was to um, to acquiesce or pander to what the popular or populist views were. So, you know, uh, tough on crime or get tough on this or support that. They become politicians, not objective judges. In Canada, we don't have that. We do not have judges that run for reelection. They're appointed and in their appointment, they're now secure that they will do what they believe to be right. That is so valuable because an independent jury is a, a judge is essential to your ability to walk into court and feel you'll at least get a fair shake. We have an independent prosecutorial system. Again, very much unlike the United States, actually, Uh, here in Canada, it's part of the British tradition, our our prosecutors view themselves as ministers of justice. What that means is they owe an obligation to the witnesses, to the complainants, to the victims, they owe an obligation to the accused person, but they also owe an obligation to the public. And so they don't come in with a win at all costs mentality. They come in with very much a view that they have to be fair. And I've dealt with a lot of American prosecutors, and I can tell you that is not the mindset that they bring to a case at all. Uh, It's very different, unfortunately. So we have that. Uh, We have an independent defense bar. We uh, don't do a very good job at all of funding them through legal aid, which is really a very, very sad state because these are the people that stand beside the most marginalized, the most indigent. so, if you want a perfect system or as perfect as it can be, you want everybody to be at the top of their game. But all those factors are so critical and are so valuable, and they've always existed. And we should do everything we can to always safeguard them. But what are the things that we need to change? Well, one of the most significant things is the overrepresentation of indigenous community members. They're overcharged, they're over incarcerated. Uh, they are marginalized and they are marginalized throughout Canada. Uh, they are certainly marginalized in the in the justice system. That is something that we have not done uh, remotely a good job of addressing and and finally ending. Uh, I think we can do a little bit better when it comes to being creative about how we deal with criminal justice and how we think about it. We can think of uh, restorative measures We can think of different ways uh, and not just be focused on punishment, but focus on rehabilitation, focus on uh, reconciliation. There are a lot of ways and a lot of, you know, countries that are thinking differently, uh, you know, about certain types of crimes like drug crimes and and those sorts of things. We can do that. We can do so much better in that front. Um, And, you know, at the end of the day, uh, we have a lot of work to do in, in progressing and we have. You know you think of the laws in the 1980s and then you think of where we are today there have been a lot of uh there's been a lot of progression in dealing with certain offenses sexual assault offenses would be one area where we've come a long way it doesn't mean we don't have longer to go but a very long way in in rethinking how we approach it so there 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 is just again this is why to go back to what you asked me why do i love law why do i because it is so dynamic, it's, it's so reflective of who we are, and it's it's, it's um, capable of response and change. And it may be slow, uh, and it may be painstaking, but it is capable of it. Um, so those, I, I think those are the good things and the bad things that are successful.
1: Well, I'll tell you, I, um, I went through a rough divorce in 2009. Um uh, my then wife, seemingly out of, blue, out of the blue, decided she didn't want to be married to me. And it was not fun at first. You know, right now we get along terrifically well. In fact, well enough that we go on vacations with our, our kids together and our, our new respective spouses. So we've got a great relationship now, but it wasn't good then. And I'll, I'll tell you, the the system, me being from the Middle East, the system was looking at me differently because I was from the Middle East. That was one of the times that I told you I was, you know, not happy with the racism shown by the system. It wasn't a racism shown by my my ex-wife, but it was a racism shown by the system to a Middle Eastern man. And oh, because he's from the Middle East, he might he might take his kids to Canada, so to Iran. And so therefore there there were there were some uh there were some rulings that came down that prevented me from even being able to be With my children, and it was absolutely awful and terrible. And before that, I'd never had any sort of brush with with the law of any kind—family law, (laughs) criminal law, or any of that stuff. And then I got into it myself, and and I met quite a few other men. And I'll tell you what horrified me was that year. I I spoke to a a, um, she was a paralegal, and I was speaking to her when I was going through this, and she was a friend of mine. And I said what's going on? Why is this happening to me? Why are they they saying all these things about me? She says, well, it's the dirty little secret of the system. You're a man and you're from the Middle East. And here's the truth. A lot of family lawyers go tell their clients, listen, go say this, this, and this about your ex. It'll give you a leg up in court. And the the horrible thing about that was that this paralegal told me about half of those men didn't have the funds to be able to fight back. And they just accepted charges being Thrown their way, and they 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 acquiesced to them, even though they were completely innocent. They lost the right to be with their with their children. Many of them uh, had to had to have a, a some sort of a record as a result of this. And I got to tell you, it made me really angry, really really angry. And I I don't mean the momentary anger. I mean the righteous anger of somebody who's been aggrieved by uh, something that's fundamentally unjust. And that's one of the reasons that I uh, started a men's organization. I I joined an existing men's organization. I'm all about helping men, uh, you know, become better men, not mess up their relationships. Certainly I've been working on that in my new relationship, so I don't mess that one up. But I also want to make sure that, you know, we have a society where both men and women are honored before the law and there's no actual gender discrimination against men just because they're men in family court. Because that's what I experienced. And it was a horrible, horrible thing.
0: I understand that, but let me give you a bit of a different perspective because it is important. You know, I, I, I appreciate that you were experiencing that and that was your perspective. And I, I certainly hear you on assumptions that are made about uh, cultures that that litigants come from, how a Middle Eastern man would behave or, or um, all sorts of things like that. So I do understand that. But I, I think we do have to look at how family law worked historically and historically it was the women... That were in a very, very significant um, negative position. Uh, And that meant these were women who had no access to funds after being married because the law would not give it to them, that had no protection uh, financially. Uh, The presumption was uh, not protection for them and their children. It was the other way. The presumption was towards the male if he wanted to assert a custodial claim. And so, You have to understand that the history that 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 came from was not favorable to women. I I think it is wrong to to think that the the system is now pitched against men Um, because it came from a history that was quite different than that, actually. But I think what you're identifying and I I do want to spend a few moments talking about it. And I'm not a family lawyer. I've done a little bit of it. Is that. This is an area of law, family law, which, again, it's not necessarily always suitable for resolution in a a war in a courtroom. I agree with
1: 100 percent.
0: So much emotion, so much life history. It involves children. It involves people who will have to hopefully uh, find a way to deal with each other for the rest of their lives. And so many lawyers. Um, you know, Martha McCarthy, who's a friend of mine who's a, a very, very famous family lawyer here in uh, Ontario. Uh, and many other family lawyers have been working very hard with court systems to ensure that instead of pushing people who are in a such a distressed time in their lives where they're not seeing their children and not being able to communicate that, instead of pushing them into a war in a courtroom, we're taking it out and dealing with it in in, in mediation and and trying to resolve uh, that that process. So you know, it's a really good example where sometimes we have to rethink how we deal with issues, problems, and it's a courtroom isn't always the best place to end up. You know, and certainly for families that that sit there and 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 have to deal with each other, it's one of the worst places to end up. So I'm I'm glad to hear that. There's a happy ending to that, that story. And I have no doubt both you and your ex-wife worked a great deal to bring yourselves there uh, all to the benefit of your children, for sure. Um, and I think what we can do as as a system and as lawyers um, and as a legal system is to try to help families through what is a period of extraordinary crisis and very intense emotion. Uh, so sorry, it's I know it's a long-winded, it's a long-winded no, answer. No, it's a good answer.
1: I appreciate it's a that. Tough,
0: it's, a, it's a tough area. And I just think it's it's not good to feel like you're, um, that the system is sort of stacked against you. I, I don't think it is. I, I know what you're talking about, but I do think that it's important for really what we should be addressing is how do we deal with these issues in a different way that isn't so damaging to all of the participants and doesn't make people feel like they're not being heard. Um, so, you know, it's a tough question.
1: I appreciate that. And listen, we did end up in a good place and I appreciate the past was very different than, than what it is now, but the pendulum was here and now it's here yeah. and we need to bring it back here to the middle. Cause it's not there yet. There's a lot of good men that are being screwed by the system and they don't know what to do. I have had friends of mine commit suicide over this, you know, because they didn't have another way, and, and and I'll tell you this: these are some stats that are that are absolutely heartbreaking. Um, one is that, uh, quite rightly, there are over twenty five hundred women's shelters in Canada, uh, and this is a good thing. But the issue of uh, shelters for men: um, there is one shelter for men in the entire country, one, and I'll grant you that. Men are the ones who probably commit more violence at a way higher rate than women. In fact, I've got some stats on that. But there is a lot of violence that's committed against men, too. And for there to only be one shelter for men in the entire country, I think that's a travesty. And I think it's important that we come to a space where, A, what you say happens, which is that we move away from war in court (laughs) and war in life to a more mediated way to do things. And who knows? In some cases, you might even be able to fix the problems and fix the family. But it's um, it's important for us as a society to treat everybody the same, to treat everybody equally before the law. And certainly my experience wasn't that. I had to fight like hell to get to just get back to even. And the experience that far too many men that I've dealt with has been the same. And I'm not saying these guys are perfect, and I'm not saying I was perfect, but I think the system could have given us a better shake. And if it had, I think things, for example, in my own case, one of the things that was crazy was that. I wasn't even allowed to communicate with my wife during the, the time where all this was going on. The way the, the, the court orders had come down was they considered me a threat to my kids and, and, and to my wife. I was not allowed to communicate with her directly or indirectly. And I can tell you, I think that's horrible because I don't have a history of violence. Never had a history of violence. And I wasn't allowed to speak to my wife. And as a result, during that early time where there was a possibility for us to talk things out and maybe see if we could work things out, that was taken off the table. And for that, I got to tell you, I got some hard feelings toward the judge who issued those orders. You know, I'm in a good place in my life right now, but I don't think that judge should have done that. That judge helped break up a family.
0: Well, I I think the it sort of goes back to what I was talking about, which is this uh, thinking about the system in a bit of a different way and to try to understand what the needs are of all the parties. Um, and to sometimes agree that perhaps the court is not the best place for certain disputes to end up, and, and that's why, as I said, you know there are family lawyers across the country who are trying to rethink it, particularly when you've got high crisis, high um, you know high intensity, um, acrimonious circumstances, which you know often, as you have experienced, with the passage of time and with some assistance and guidance. It, People are navigated through it and come out on the other side uh, in a much better, much better place. I think that's what you want as a society. Uh, But that's I think it's about the creative thinking a little bit about, you know, what is the right place for certain types of disputes, right? And how to deal with it. And, uh, you know, the other thing you're talking about, which many people feel, is that they're not necessarily being heard and uh, they're not being, they're not understanding um, why things are happening. And that's part of the also challenge of the justice system is to try to make it explicable, to try to explain why certain things are happening, to understand there are ways to challenge things if you don't agree with them. But look, I think what I will say is that there is nobody who's gone through the court process, whether it's a family law case or a civil case or a criminal case that comes out saying, wow, that's how I want to spend most of my time. It's a it's a it's it's a rough place to be. It's emotionally traumatizing. It's distressing. It's financially depleting. It is so really, and this is I'm not trying to do myself out of work, but really, it's sort of the last resort. It's not our first resort. Um, So we should be thinking about all of these things that you've talked about and trying to see well, how can we not end up in a courtroom? How can we try to figure this out? So, uh, you know, certainly in criminal justice, uh, you see other countries doing this, uh, not prosecuting people with drug addiction and instead dealing with a very um, collaborative approach to provide treatment. Because sometimes you have to agree that, you know, an addiction doesn't belong in a criminal courtroom and we're not gonna do a good job of fixing it. Just as with family disputes, you know, putting people who have to share children together, pitted against each other in a courtroom really should be a last resort for us. It really should be the final place. If we can't think of anything else to to remediate the situation so you know we have to think about our justice system and we have to also take lessons because there are different types of systems and we can do different things and be a little more creative
1: i agree with that i agree with that wholeheartedly and i think some of those approaches ought to be brought into canada and you know it's interesting that you mentioned the 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 good things about canada's uh justice system and one of the things that you spoke about was how prosecutors behave here versus how prosecutors behave in the united states and i i i can't help but think about this this case that's been in the news uh in the u.s around that young boy kyle rittenhouse who um Mm. who was charged by a prosecutor over there and 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 I didn't pay a lot of attention to that story at the beginning. And I heard, okay, this is, this is a hothead kid who took a gun into a situation and, and he shot a bunch of people uh, and, and the prosecutor. And then I started following it just a little while ago. Cause he, he you know, he reminds me of my 13 year old son a little bit, you know, the, the look on his face, he's, he's got a little baby face. And I thought, Oh my God, that could be my, my son over there. And I started to, to watch what, what happened. And I watched some of the videos and I watched what the prosecutor was saying. And I'm going, I think this guy's lying. I can't believe it. I can't imagine a prosecutor would would do that. But that's what it looked like. He wanted to win that case so badly, he actually didn't care what the facts were. And that's one of the things that when I was reading about Conrad Black's situation in the United States, he argued that the American justice system is fundamentally corrupt because the prosecutors there have no incentive to seek the truth. He said that they win ninety nine percent of their cases in court, while in Canada. They win under 60 percent of their cases when they go to court. And I thought to myself, thank God I live in Canada. Not that I, I'd ever want to be caught in a situation like that, but at least over here, I'd have a fair shot over there. I don't think I would.
0: You know, what What would be um, I didn't follow that, that uh, what the prosecutor was saying, but I did uh, listen to a great podcast again, <laughs> sorry, uh, about the prosecutors in the George Floyd case uh, and uh, listening to. How they chose to present that case and prosecute it incredibly effectively uh and uh, with a, a great deal of um respect and strategy it was very fascinating it was really fascinating and they were brought in actually to prosecute that case one had never tried a criminal case one was a, a an extensive uh, had extensive experience in uh, as a jury lawyer uh, but Look, there are different different approaches and 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 different ways. Uh, I think in Canada you'll see that it's more restrained. The temperature is is down a lot. Uh, we're Canadian by nature. We're just <laughs> that's our nature, and it's a good thing. You know, we are uh, a little more uh, controlled and uh, maybe a little less histrionic than um, often happens in the United States, where. Uh, you know, the the temperature is elevated. But I think what you see is good lawyers, no matter where they are, are good lawyers. And uh, so I was actually, you know, fascinated to hear the, the prosecutors in George Floyd's case speak. They were uh, strategic and, and brilliant in how they approached it. So I didn't follow uh, what the prosecutor did in in, uh, in
1: case. It's a, fa- it's a fascinating thing to watch, the difference between Canadian criminal uh, justice and American criminal justice. Um, So, Marie, have you ever thought about what you're going to do after you finish practicing law? You're going to become a judge, you're going to run for office and implement some of these ideas?
0: No, you know what? I I don't know what I'm going to do. Um, The the world is a big one. Uh, There are a lot of things to to do and to work in. And, uh, you know, I've always been fascinated in international work. I would love the opportunity to be able to do that, actually, to work on a... you know, in criminal justice on an international scale, uh, that would be fascinating to me. Um, but I don't know. I don't know. Who knows? you
1: never know. I think that's fantastic. So the name of your book is Nothing But The Truth, A Memoir by Marie Hennin. Uh, I, I got to tell you, it's, it sounds fascinating. I can't wait till my copy comes in. Can't wait to read it. Um, it it's wonderful to see somebody with your level of, of clarity and moral courage put together a book like this and to share your thoughts with the world. God bless you for what you do. God bless you for who you are. And thank you for standing up for what's right in this great country of ours. It's people like you that make me proud to be a Canadian.
0: Wow. Thank you so much. Thank you very much for having me. No, uh, it's, it, it's, it's
1: been an honor. And that wraps up another incredible episode of the podcast, The Thought Leader Revolution. To find out more about today's guest and her fabulous new book, The One and Only Marie Henning, go to the show notes at thethoughtleaderrevolution.com or check us out wherever you listen to this podcast, be it on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or Audible. Until next time, goodbye.
0: This episode has been brought to you by ecircleacademy.com, the proven system to add six to seven figures a year to your thought leader practice.